0: The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City by the Rev. Dr. Robin Myers, senior minister in one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe that religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Dr. Robin Myers.
1: This is not the lectionary text. I picked it because of the times in which we are living and how worried we are. This is from the Sermon on the Mount about not worrying. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your span of life? And why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. How they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? For it is the Gentiles who strive for all these things, and indeed your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. Here ends this reading inspired by God. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. Worrying is big business, very big. After the Texas church massacre last Sunday, a company that provides armed security guards for churches reports that business is booming. The possibility that tax cuts won't really help the middle class but hurt them again has people worried. Global climate change has some people so worried they've decided not to have children. And every day another revelation of sexual abuse by men with power over other people proves that male privilege corrupts and white male privilege corrupts ultimately. No wonder women worry. Teenagers are committing suicide in record numbers. Students are accumulating so much debt in college, they'll pay for it the rest of their lives. And every family without health insurance is one illness or disease away from bankruptcy. And by the way, you probably don't have enough money to retire. So there's a whole industry out there to help you worry about that. Now, I know you know all these things already and probably wonder if this sermon is going to be a major downer. But there's a reason I picked this text this morning, because here comes Jesus, like some first century Bobby McFerrin, to say, don't worry, be happy. Or since I was once an avid reader of Mad Magazine as a kid, there was Alfred E. Newman's goofy but tranquilizing life motto, what, me worry? Well, it all sounds lovely and simple, Have faith in God and then live as free as a bird, as radiant and self-possessed as the lilies of the field. Strive not after your own security or prosperity, but seek first the kingdom of God and God's righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well." Really? Years ago when I was in graduate school, I was reading a work by perhaps the most brilliant and influential rhetorician of the modern era, Kenneth Burke. In his classic work, language as symbolic action, which you only read if you're in a PhD program in rhetoric, Burke offers a definition of human beings, what he called the human animal that I've never forgotten. He defined you and me this way, pre-inclusive language. Man is the symbol-using, symbol-making, symbol-misusing animal, inventor of the negative, separated from his natural condition by instruments of his own making, goaded by the spirit of hierarchy, and rotten with perfection. Now there's enough there for a whole sermon or even a sermon series, but in short, Burke knows that our symbols define us and then control us. Think of the flag or the swastika, for example. As Christmas approaches, we're going to see a lot of ads in which luxury cars come to life at night and pay homage to the baby Jesus. (laughs) They're on already. I I saw one. There are no symbols we cannot turn into idols. Burke also knows humans alone know what something is by knowing what something is not, the negative which gives us in-groups and out-groups, aka racism, homophobia, sexism, xenophobia, and the Oklahoma State Legislature. We are all well, no, no. we are also the only animal that is separated from the natural world by our gadgets. And we are goaded by the spirit of hierarchy. That is intensely competitive and fascinated with who's on top and who's not, and my favorite phrase of all, we are indeed rotten with perfection. Meaning unable to be content with who and what we are, but always trying to be or become something more, something different, something perfect. I thought of Burke when I read this famous passage from the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus is also confronting how rotten we are with perfection and what it does to us and to everyone around us. Strangely, Burke once explained how humans and animals are different by comparing them to birds, which do not apparently understand symbolic activity. When he saw a bird trapped in his college classroom one day flying about, the windows were open, but the bird kept flying up into the ceiling rather than out the window. We've all seen this If the bird could only use symbols to communicate, then we could simply inform the bird to observe and take advantage of the open window, and it could fly to freedom. But its instincts tell it to fly up, crashing again and again into the ceiling. How odd that Jesus also used birds to illustrate what it means not to be rotten with perfection. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Well, that's an interesting question, and it assumes that humans assume their own superiority, which of course we do. But I know how Pope Francis would answer, no. We are not of more value than the birds. We are all creatures who must share the planet because we're all part of the same sustaining ecosystem. When Rachel Carson wrote her groundbreaking book on the environment in 1970, she entitled it Silent Spring, warning that if we did not change our ways, there would be no birds to announce the arrival of spring, or lately, no bees whose pollination we cannot live without. It all gives new meaning to having a talk about the birds and the bees. When Burke refers uh, to us as being separated from our natural condition by instruments of our own making, he should have lived long enough to see cell phones and social networking and those tweets that masquerade as real human communication. I saw a church sign the other day that read, tweet others as you would like to be tweeted. Really? (laughs) Or, heaven forbid, don't tweet at all. Sean and I, my wife Sean and I, have made a new rule that when we go on a date, a real date, the phones must stay in the car. Because, let's face it, these instruments of our own making are not just our masters, they mediate a world to us that does not exist. They lie to us, they corrupt our elections. They seduce us into joining these fraternities and sororities that we call identity politics. So what does Jesus mean when he tells us not to worry? Well, it's not a passive life he's calling us to, but one that is reoriented toward the kingdom of God and God's righteousness. When this happens, all these things will be given to you as well. That is, he admits we need food, clothing, and shelter. Even the Gentiles need these things, and so God knows everybody must need them. But the object of your life should not be to be seduced by them or to multiply them or to be anxious about losing them. Your first thought should be to participate in the reign of God, to share the wealth, to forgive the offense, to heal the sick, to liberate the captive, to shelter the orphan, to protect the weak ones of this world, and then all these necessities will be given to you as well, really. This is completely counterintuitive. We are all raised to believe that we acquire things by not giving them away after we've acquired them, otherwise we don't have them anymore. On the other hand, if we give things away in order to get something back, it's just another selfish transaction. We're still trying to get rich, but now we're doing it by first becoming poor. There is, as you know, an enormous branch of the church that preaches the so-called prosperity gospel. You give in order to get, and that is the exact opposite of this teaching. If you give expecting something in return, then you are still striving and you are still worrying. What Jesus is calling for, I think, is a new orientation that faith, as we have understood it, which i think has been mostly believing stuff in order to get stuff that's not pleasing to god rather faith should be a form of deep transrational trust transrational as opposed to irrational faith as i am coming to understand it is not uh, is not about certainty or addiction to certainty since we don't know anything for certain but rather a form of radically embodied trust that's oriented toward love and gives the benefit of the doubt, that is generous, unselfish, and compassionate, that gets itself out of its own way, that does not take direct aim at happiness, but finds happiness as a byproduct. I remember listening to one of my father's sermons when I was still in high school about how religion could or should help us, quote, escape the prison of self, and that phrase struck me with peculiar force, to escape the prison of self, because I do believe we are all trapped, imprisoned by feelings of deep insecurity and unworthiness, locked down by fear, and constantly self-medicating, unable to escape this prison of fear by logic or by accomplishments or by positive thinking. Escape from the prison of self, my father explained in this sermon, is a derivative of grace. We can't do it alone. In fact, human beings left entirely to their own devices will inevitably devise their own demise. There is no better time to be happy, contented, and amazed by life than right now, since right now is all we have. Not later when our ship comes in. I'll tell you something. Those of you who left a house today to come to church that has indoor plumbing and a roof that doesn't leak, that means your ship has already come in. If you know someone who loves you and if you can give love back to that person in return, you are twice blessed. If you have friends you can call when you need someone to talk to, you are wealthy And if you own a Labrador, (laughs) just saying, or some other equally loyal animal, then you are obscenely rich. Lots of people worry about the past as if they can change it, but the past is a time, not a place. We can't live there. And the future is not some Cinderella moment without the stroke of midnight. And no one understood this better than Lucy, of all people, in the great American comic strip, Peanuts. Lucy said once, I never think about the past. Also, I never worry about the future. Well, it sounded a little smug to Charlie, so he asks, well, what about the present? Whereupon Lucy explodes her frustration in huge block letters, the present drives me crazy. An 18th century German philosopher, Schiller, tried to say the same thing, quote, he who neglects the present moment throws away all he has. And it's a problem for all of us. It's a problem for me. Sometimes I walk around practicing a lecture that has yet to be given. It is the perfect lecture, of course. My students listen attentively. They ask brilliant questions. And then at the conclusion, they burst into applause. (laughs) Sometimes I dream of writing and delivering the perfect sermon, whatever that is exactly. Then deep down, I worry that if I did deliver the perfect sermon, I would get fired. (laughs) Or I should. But the truth is, we all carry around inside of ourselves some vision of perfect joy, perfect marriage, perfect day. We are rotten with perfection. I know I do. I used to dream of winning the Masters Golf Tournament. Then I dreamed of something that doesn't exist called the perfect church, full of perfect people. I mean, wouldn't it be nice if the steeple would just paint itself every three years and, um, you know, Everyone liked all the music all the time. And, and, and nobody ever thought of the ministers as too political. And the trustees could divinely intuit, like Johnny Carson's The Great Karnak, exactly how much everyone was going to give to the church next year without a pledge card. Rotten with perfection. How perfectly this describes the illusions of the human animal. And then along comes Jesus to say, do not worry, orient yourself toward the kingdom of God, not as a strategy, but as a way of being in the world and the rest will take care of itself. Paul once said in his letter to the Romans, in all this, remember how critical the moment is. I read about a farmer once who had lived on the same farm all his life and it was a good farm, but with the passing years, he'd gotten tired of it. He longed for a change, for something better, a better farm. And every day he found a new reason for criticizing some feature of the old place. And finally he decided, I'm going to sell it, so he listed the farm with a real estate broker who promptly prepared a sales advertisement. As one might expect, it emphasized all the farm's advantages, ideal location, modern equipment, healthy stock, acres of fertile ground, etc., etc. Before placing the ad in the newspaper, the realtor called the farmer and read the copy to him for his approval. And when he'd finished, the farmer said, wait, wait, hold everything. I've changed my mind. I'm not going to sell. I've been looking for a place like that my whole life. (laughs) So if there is one message all the saints have tried to communicate through the centuries, it must be this, don't miss the moment because you assume a better one is coming. Live every moment as if a sacred theater is in session, played out before an audience that is largely blind. There is no such thing as an ordinary day. 17th century Dutch painter Johannes Vermeer made masterpieces out of completely ordinary things or out of nothing. A woman sitting and reading a letter or asleep at a table, and critics called his work the timeless contemplation of the ordinary, and my favorite phrase, eternalizing the moment. That that should be everyone's job, to eternalize the moment. Annie Dillard called this recognition that the world is on fire luminescence. I know many of you have seen Thornton Wilder's classic play, Our Town. And I know that I've shared this with you before, but it was true before, and it's still true. Set in the tiny town of Grover's Corner, the heroine Emily is caught up in the endless cycles of life in small 19th century New England town. People come and go, they marry, raise, children hope, laugh, love, and die, just as we do everywhere. And she grows up and falls in love with George Gibbs and marries right out of high school, just when everyone in Grover's Corner is supposed to get married. And all the ladies of the church said there was never a more beautiful wedding and never a more handsome couple. And then then something happened that made even Grover's Corner seem cruel. Emily dies in childbirth. Through the magic of the stage, Wilder writes a scene that's a powerful reminder to live in the moment. The scene is Emily's funeral on a dreary day, and two groups of people can be seen on the stage. One that stands around Emily's freshly dug grave, they are the living, while a second group stand off to one side. They represent the people in Grover's corner who have died. They are ghosts, if you will, who can talk and feel and be heard by the audience, but not by the living. Emily has now joined their ranks, and they can be seen and heard trying to comfort her. She can't believe that life is over so soon, that it went so fast. So she decides to make a special request. She asks if she can go back and live one of the days of her life over again, just one day, to remember what it was like to be alive. The dead tell her, no, 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 this will be a mistake, because when you go back, you'll know what living people never know. You will know the future. But she insists she just wants to live one day of her life again. She will also, of course, see herself living it. And they tell her, this will be painful, Emily. Okay, I'll pick a happy day, my 12th birthday. So the wish is granted and the scene shifts and it's Emily's house on her 12th birthday. At center stage, the tiny figure of Emily dressed in white appears in her mother's kitchen. She's gotten dressed up for a day of exploring and fun, and all the while, the ghost of Emily the grown woman watches from the corner of the stage, and we can hear her voice. She sees familiar sights and exclaims, oh, there's Main Street. Why, there's Mr. Morgan's Drugstore before he changed it, And, and there's the livery stable. And then she sees her mother come in. Mama, I'm here, but of course her mother can't hear her. Oh, how young Mama looks. I didn't ever know that mama was that young. She sees her favorite neighbor come in and deliver milk and her father cries out, where's my birthday girl? The memories flood back and it gets hard for Emily to watch. She speaks to us from among the dead, I can't bear it. They are so young and beautiful. Why did they ever have to get old? Mama, I'm, I'm here, I'm grown up. I love you all, everything oh, I can't look at everything hard enough. There's the butternut tree. There's the high school forever and ever. There's the congregational church where I got married. Oh, dear, I don't think I can look anymore. And just then she sees herself enter the kitchen as a 12-year-old to have breakfast. Her mother gives her some motherly advice. Chew that bacon slow, Emily. It'll keep you warm on a cold day. Then we hear the ghost of Emily saying softly, but urgently, one of the most powerful lines ever uttered in the theater. Oh, Mama. Mama, just look at me one minute as if you really saw me. Mama, 14 years have gone by. I'm dead. You're a grandmother, Mama. I married George Gibbs, Mama. Wally's dead too, Mama. His appendix burst on a camping trip to North Conway. We felt just terrible about it. Don't you remember? But just for a moment now, we're all together. Mama, just for a moment, we're happy. Let's let's look at one another. Before this day is over, promise me that you will look at someone. Really look at them and not wait to tell them how you feel. This is our town, this is our life. This is the only day we have for sure because tomorrow is given to no one. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. You cannot serve two masters, said Jesus, God and Mammon. And remember, there are no pockets in a shroud. Are you waiting to be happy one of these days when things are perfect? Are you rotten with perfection? Then throw out your old rotten self and follow your bliss. If you love someone, don't wait to tell that person. If you need to forgive someone, do it now. Care for others and you'll be cared for. Give the benefit of the doubt, you will receive it. And if you have way more than you need, find someone with less than he needs and be generous. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself and then then don't worry. It's wasted energy. It changes nothing, only love Only love can do that. Amen.
0: You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Dr. Robin Myers, Senior Minister of Mayflower Congregation on UCC Church of Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services every Sunday are at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m., with adult education classes at 10 a.m., and a full church school for all ages is available during the second service. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street, a block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.